uh, people, whoever you are, good morning. <clears throat> you can see this is going to be a great class today. Um, thank you for coming out and braving the elements. Thank you for being on time. It's always a joy when, you know, the Lord has a message for his people that the people of God get to the class or get to the church or whatever on time to hear, hopefully, what the Lord is speaking. So this morning, we're going to be taking in 7 and 8, chapters 7 and 8, We're going through these chapters. I know for some of you, rather quickly, but hopefully our purpose is not to get through it so quickly, but to encourage you to be reading and studying the book at home. And then, of course, when you get to your covenant groups or in your small groups, your discussions, or however you are applying this, this class will make better sense of the material. It will kind of bring everything together together in a better way. So obviously we're not relying on what is said from this uh, lectern here. We're relying on what is said here, plus more basically what the book has to say, what God has to say through Tim Chester's book. So let's be turning to chapters 7, chapter 7 this morning as we open on page 117. Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us, which encourages, motivates, and gives us the ability, the desire to be faithful to you. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for not only saving us, but doing absolutely everything that was necessary to both keep us saved and to sanctify us to keep us free from submitting to sin, to keep us free from living under its bondage, living under the bondage of Satan, living under the bondage of the world. Father, we are free. We simply don't have to do this anymore. By the power and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, you have made it absolutely not only possible but very probable and it should be that we live on this earth to manifest the community of the Godhead in heaven in such a way that the world may be overwhelmed, not with us, but with you. So, Father, make this so in a greater way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, you remember, we talked about sin, and we saw that sin is connected to pleasure. Why do we sin? How many of you are being made to sin? How many of you sin? How many of us sin because we simply like it? Come on, you can raise your hand on that. That's why we sin. Why do we lie? Because we're protecting something we like. Why do we cheat? Because we're trying to get something we want. Why do we do what we do when it comes to sin? Because pleasure is at the basis of that. Remember what Jesus says, for where your heart is, there is your treasure also. And our treasure is our pleasure. And so very much that's what is motivating us. But you remember last week also we talked about our pleasure being met in experiencing God's pleasure. You see, we are made to need to experience pleasure. It's not wrong. It's right. But sin has twisted it and caused our desire for pleasure and our seeking for pleasure to be within ourselves and within our surroundings and the world and the company we keep. 
because we've been saved, God has established in us His own presence, His own pleasure in us, so that as we seek Him, as we resist sin, as we walk in obedience, we will have ever-increasing pleasure, joy, peace, contentment, satisfaction, and meaning. The very bases of what causes us to be who we are. And so this morning we get into chapter 7 and we're going to talk about some of those attitudes that get in the way of our changing. And I didn't put it in my notes this way, but I think I could summarize the issues in chapter 7 this way. We are basically a people who are dismissive of the significance and danger of our sin. We're dismissive of it. We're basically submissive. Uh, What did I say? Dismissive of it. Let's turn to page 117 and see what Chester has to say under proud self-reliance. Because, see, our pride causes us to think we can be basically dismissive. Maybe not of every sin because there are certain categories of sin, you know, that, oh, I don't ever want to do that sin. But this one, oh, well, we're dismissive because we haven't understood sin and we haven't experienced God to the place that we need to. So look at the second paragraph of 117. Have you ever been frustrated or angry at your lack of change? Anybody in here, you've been frustrated with yourself because you haven't been changing or at least you don't think you're changing. Anybody in here, you've beaten yourself, so to speak, because of your lack of whatever. Well, certainly I think all of us have done it. Many people have said to me at this point, I can't believe I've done it again. Anybody in here? I can't, I, I can't believe. I just prayed, and then an hour later, pfft. I'm so cross with myself for doing this. I thought this many times. I've thought this many times of myself. But listen to Ed Wells. Perhaps a person is mad at himself for repenting the same sin over and over again. This is actually a veiled form of pride that assumes he is capable of doing good in his own power. He is minimizing his spiritual inability apart from God's grace. That's a great statement. Every time I find myself angry with me over my failure, I am saying I am basing my attempt and my ability and my struggle and everything within the context of who I am rather than depending upon the Holy Spirit. Why? Because, you see, our attempts to change are in my abilities rather than in God's ability. And when I do this, I'm not only disallowing sin to mass, I'm not only disallowing us, this kind of attitude is not only disallowing us to master sin, but here's more dangerous. It is allowing our sin to master us. If this is our attitude, we're not only not overcoming sin, Sin is more and more overcoming us, and we have to be aware of it, and we have to come out of it. On pages 119 to 125, I'm not going to read those pages this morning. But you might want to peruse these pages as Tim Chester gives us a number of examples on this kind of an attitude, this what he calls this proud self-reliance. And see, when you read those, if you don't find glimpses of yourself in these. I remember reading them and said, yep, I can see me. I can see, you know, I can see myself. I can see myself here, there, and yonder. 
So let's talk about some of these dismissive attitudes about sin. On page 119, first of all, excusing sin. Excusing sin. The blame game is the oldest game in town. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord, when Adam and Eve, chapter verse 6, and Adam ate of the, I should have stayed home, when Adam ate of the fruit, and after Adam ate of the fruit, he realized he had done wrong. And the Lord comes down in the cool of the evening just strolling through the park. And there are Adam and Eve hiding behind the, uh, the broccolis. See, that's why broccoli isn't good for you. That's just a proof text of why broccoli and that stuff isn't good for you. It'll kill you now. And so they're in the cabbage patch hiding. And the Lord is saying, Adam, where are you? And the Lord says, what have you done? What's going on, Adam? Now, God knows he's drawing out confession from them. God knows he's drawing out confession. So let's look at verse 11. And when I look at this and when we read this, don't just read it theologically. Oh, yes, Adam did that, Adam. Think about the last time you were caught in sin. Think about the first knee-jerk reaction you have when it comes to your guilt. And Adam says this, if I can find verse 11. The Lord says, who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me. Now listen, that's highly significant because you see, that's the danger of excusing sin. The woman whom you gave me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I did eat. Then the Lord, oh, okay, turned to the woman. Hey, how about you, sister? The serpent. He deceived me. And so the Lord turns to the serpent and says, hey, what about you? And he goes, there's nobody else. The buck stops here. You see, Flip Wilson, Bill, was right. The devil made me do it. You see, our first inclination is to shift blame. The first thing comes to our minds is to say, yeah, but. How many of you know this is true? Come on. Yeah, but. And we look at a person, we look at a circumstance, we look at a problem, we look at whatever. We want to look elsewhere. On 119 at the bottom of the page, Chester gives us a list of some of these shifting of blame comments. What's the main problem with this? What's the main problem when we shift blame? Whom are we blaming? God. You see, it is better for you just to say, God, this is your fault. I committed this deed, but it's your fault because, you see, you made me this way. I'm weak. I'm just a human being. You know, I just have problems. You just don't know my circumstances. It is just better to blame God. I think that would be a little more direct because at least with that, God can get at the real problem, the root. We blame God. There is no way when we excuse sin that we are not blaming God. Never think you're not blaming God. We are always putting the blame to him. Number two, minimizing sin. Pages 21 to 20, 121 to 123. Minimizing sin. Now, first of all, we all excuse it. I think we all do this. We all have this inbuilt, fallen propensity of the flesh to say, 
and point outside. That's everybody in this room. Secondly, we minimize sin. Well, you know, yeah, but why are you making such a big deal? It was only a, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I'm only human. I mean, did, have you seen what the other guy did? I mean, he was going faster than I was. He also went through the red light. Everybody does it. It's just a different understanding of what's right and wrong. It minimizing sin. And again, anytime we are doing these kinds of things, we are disallowing the Holy Spirit to work his work of transformation in our hearts. Why are we emphasizing this? Why does the book emphasize this? Because this is where all of us live from time to time. And to the extent that we live in these neighborhoods will be the extent that we will not experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives for the glory of God. We must begin to recognize this, and as we see it right, written down, as we remember it when I'm sinning, when I'm about to give an excuse or whatever, hopefully the Holy Spirit will remind you. Remember what he said about this, that, and the other, and we will not do that. We will say to God, I will not give that excuse. I will not be dismissive of my sin. You see, when we're dismissive of our sin, when we minimize it, we fail to realize at least two important truths. First, the seriousness of sin and God's honor and reputation. This is the reason we minimize sin, because we simply don't see sin as serious as it is. Listen to this quote at the bottom or toward the bottom of the page on page 121. <coughs> it's the last sentence in the paragraph that begins minimizing sin. Sin is serious. And I think if we can get this in our minds, sin is serious. It's so serious that it demands eternal hell for everyone who sins, even once. Imagine just one sin, one time, demands eternal hell. That's serious. Either it demands eternal hell or it demands the death of God's eternal son. This is serious. True repentance grieves over sin. Never does it minimize sin. And so this morning, and as we go through this series, if you're not in contact with the seriousness of even what we call the little sins, because God doesn't call them little sins, venial sins and mortal sins and all that foolishness. It's sin. Even the littlest sin, if you would, that any of us have ever committed just one time would have either demanded our eternal hell or Jesus dying the cross for us in order to forgive us. Let's get a greater appreciation of what sin is really about. I mean, I would imagine when Keith went to the doctor and she looked at that little thing on his arm and she says, hey, hey, look, you got some cancer in your body, but don't worry about it. It's only about 50,000 cells. And compared to the billions and billions of cells, it's just a little thing, right? And you said, hey, doc, I ain't worried about this thing. It's only a point oh 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 percent of my body. It's just nothing. How many of you think he thought that way? 
the moment she said either one cancer cell, how many of you think he got concerned? Why? Because one is serious. Because it will lead, if it's not dealt with appropriately, to death. Or very bad consequences. And sin is worse than the worst cancer in our body. It is the spiritual cancer of creation. You see, if biblical repentance for the honor of God is to take place, notice what I said, repentance for God's honor, not repentance to get me out of the problem, to make my life better, to make me feel better, repentance for the honor of God. And when I'm repenting for the honor of God, I will feel better. I will see improvement. But always our reason for repentance is God's honor and glory. Father, I want to repent of this. I want you to move in repentance in me so you are honored in my life through the overcoming of this sin. Not so I'll get out of a problem and I won't be punished and I won't have to go to jail. I won't get a ticket or whatever it is. And so when our repentance is that way, we must own our sin as ours alone. It's not my wife's fault. It's not the preacher's fault. It's not your grandma's fault. It's never grandma's fault, of course. Why? Why would he even say that? It's always whose fault? My fault. <clears throat> what about hiding sin? On pages 123 to 125. What sin? I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't say that. I did not say that. I did not do that. It's my business. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Who are you to tell me? That's God's uh, business. You're not supposed to tell me I'm wrong. Only God can tell me that. See, we hide our sin. We cloak it over. You know, these kinds of comments are intended to hide our sin. Listen to this from 1 John 1.10. If we say we have not sinned, if we hide it, we make God to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Always, every time, when we are dismissive of sin, it has to do with God. It winds up, as Tim Chester said, on God's doorstep. Every attitude and action or thought or behavior that dismisses, minimizes, hides, excuses, or whatever our sin always puts the blame back on God. Some way, we're attacking God on these things. Biblical repentance cannot occur within an attitude of concealment. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Sin must be exposed to be overcome. Remember what 1 John 1, 9 said? What does he say? If we what? Confess our sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and what? Cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness of our sin. So, when possible... And when appropriate, sometimes it's not possible and sometimes under certain circumstances with certain people, whatever, it's not appropriate. But we have to be led by the Spirit. There is no rule and regulation here. This is listening to the heart and the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the more I'm walking with Him and pursuing Him and desiring Him and in His Word and obeying Him, the more I will actually hear, feel, experience His presence in me. I'm going to actually hear Him talking to me. 
And he may say about a particular sin issue in my life, tell somebody. I, I, I went through some battles with sin years ago. And I didn't want Gene to know about it. But the Lord began to talk to me about it. Tell your wife, are you kidding? How many husbands know what I mean? Come on, how many husbands? Now, wife, why did your husband raise your hand? No, to self. And I had to tell her. Who told me to tell her? Nobody told me to tell her other than the Holy Spirit. Listen to God, and he will tell you if or when and how and all the details of it. For what purpose? Of building us up, of cleansing us, of keeping us strong against sin, of binding us together. You know, some of you wives, don't make it difficult for your husband to unburden himself with you. And if he does, see it as a great work of God's grace. Don't jump back down his throat because you would be attacking the Holy Spirit's work. And that goes for husbands with wives and other family members and friends and all kinds of relationships. And I think one of the primary problems of reasons why we hide is because we people in our own legalism and our own self-justification make it too difficult for others to really tell us something because we're afraid of what they're going to say and how they're going to act and will they push me away will they condemn me will they whatever that should never happen because this is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring restoration and forgiveness and overcoming strength this is one of the avenues that he uses to bring glory to his name Remember what James 5, 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. At least that's what King James says. I kind of have remember it in these verses and another. You know, when you have a couple of versions under your belt, that happens. Hating the consequences of sin. 125 to 17. What bothers us more, sin or the consequences? Come on, what bothers us more? That I got caught and got a ticket or that I was speeding? Now, how many of you know we're bothered more by the ticket? Come on. <clears throat> I've gotten a few tickets in my day. I don't like tickets. You know, well, I mean, you know, it's only 40 miles, miles an hour over the speed limit through his, uh, the school zone. I mean, I was in a hurry to get home. I had to go take care of my children. You see, the real problem with our sin, and I can't go into this today, but I think this is the very heart of repentance. <clears throat> I think this is the very heartbeat of our ability and its effectiveness and long-lastingness of repentance. The real problem with sin is not how it affects me or others. It's what it does to God. This is the heartbeat of sin. The heartbeat of sin is to attack God. The heartbeat of sin is to attack our Heavenly Father. That's the real issue. You see, we thought the heartbeat of sin was to attack me and mine and ours. No, the heartbeat of sin 
is to attack God. I would ask you to do this. And I ask regularly in counseling times folks to do this. Ask God to begin to give you the experience of how your sin affects him. How many of the parents or grandparents in here have been severely or strongly or whatever disappointed or hurt or crushed or stabbed in the heart by the activities of your children? How many? How many of you? I have. How many of you? Now, if we have felt that way, we who are mortal, fallible people carrying around a sin-cursed body, how does God feel when we, his children, do infinitely worse against him? Ask God to give you the experience of what, Father, show me, Father, give me the experience, Lord, of what my sin does to you, how my sin impacts you. Would you show me how my sin impacts you? I want to know. Why? I need to know because it will drive me to repentance and it will protect me from sinning. Because if I can evaluate, if you would, during the season of temptation, and I can do this and so can you. If I do this, I get this. But if I do this, God, God feels this way. And this God who has done this in my life I am not going to do this to him. I am not going to do it to him. This, I believe, is the power in repentance. This issue in and of itself. Biblical repentance has to do with the restoration of God's honor, which has been soiled by our sin. Romans 2.24, Paul is writing and he tells the Jewish people, because of you, because of God's people, the name of God is being blasphemed. You see, the name of God isn't being blasphemed by the homosexuals out there who aren't saved. Let us not worry about those people as much as what we're doing to blaspheme the name of God. We're doing much worse because we're the children of God. They are not. And even a minor, if you would point on our side, blasphemes God to a place that he isn't by all these sinners in the world, if you would. But you know how we like to categorize this stuff. Ooh, God hates that. God hates. What God hates is for his children to be sinning. That's what God hates. He hates that. So next time you see an activity and you see that God hates it, thank you, God, showing me that. How much more do you hate what I do? Page 127, Chester reminds us this. He says, the key to change is continually returning to the cross. Because of the cross of Christ, here's the reason we can do this. Because of the cross of Christ, we have been forgiven, we have been adopted, and we have been given God's Spirit, who is the power in our life for effective and lasting godly change. The cross of Christ ever reminds us of the horror of our sin and the depth of God's love. And this knowledge and experience is at the heart of change in my life. Amen. Chapter 8. In this chapter, Chester gives us a few strategies to reinforce our changing. He just gives us some very practical things that will help us to change. Because the point is, sometimes I don't know what, that, what I'm doing is ever allowing sin to be present and knocking at my door. 
And the problem with it continually to knock at my door is I may go ahead and let it in. I would hope every time I would say no to it, but I don't even want sin to knock at the door. How many of you don't want sin even to knock at your door? I don't want it even to knock at the door. I don't want it to knock at my door. So let's go through a few strategies of determining how to, if you would, keep away from it, at least the best we can. First, avoid whatever provokes and strengthens sinful desires. You know, if I were you, I would make a list of what provokes and strengthens certain sins in my life. If I am dealing with issues of pornography, I simply don't want to walk next to that XXX movie theater or the movie, uh, the stand, the, 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 what do you call it, magazine stand, which has all the girly magazines on it. I don't need that. If I'm struggling with um, um, alcohol, I don't need to be around where alcohol is. I don't need that. You know, we're struggling with whatever it is. We need to avoid whatever provokes and strengthens these desires. And you know what desires you have, and you know what weaknesses you have, and you know what provokes. How many of you know what provokes your sinful desires? How many of you know that? Can, can you tell me? How many of you know that? All of us know. Well, let's, during, quote, the same times, you know, when I'm in my right mind, decide I'm not going down that street. I'm not going in that path. I'm not going with that group of people. I'm not going to turn that on. You see, because we live in a world controlled by Satan. Now, you may not believe this, but the Bible tells us in 1 John 5, 19 that the entire world lies in the control or the lap of the evil one. He is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He is pulling the strings in the culture. And we are warned not to be seduced by the world's culture. So, whatever, what circumstances should you avoid? Should I avoid? What places should I avoid? <clears throat> what relationships should I avoid? There are relationships that a believer should, oh, no, I just want to bring the gospel. I know I have a tough time, but I'm, no, you should stay away. <clears throat> and let someone else who doesn't have that problem in that area go do the gospel in that relationship. Don't be tricked by the enemy. Don't be tricked. Well, I'm just going in there to share the gospel. I know, but I think I can do it. I'm just going in to share the gospel. It's a trick under most circumstances. What entices us to sin? When, where, who, how? You see, knowing what, when, and where we are vulnerable and avoiding these areas will reinforce our ability to experience change. It's just going to do it. We have to do some practical things in our lives. We have to begin to create a structure to our lives that removes these areas as best we can. Now, does that mean that everything in the culture needs to be avoided? Is that what that means? Is that what that means? No. We live in this culture. So we're not saying avoid everything. But avoid everything for you and for me. <coughs> which will entice me to sin. And you know what? I know what it is every time, whatever it is, I get around it. I know what it is. Let's live that way. It means that we must discern what encourages our flesh and stay away from it. Number two, 
pages 137 and 139. We must say no to sinful desires. You see, we must learn and practice saying no to temptation. How many of you have begun to say no to temptation and you've begun to see that it actually works? When you say in the Holy Spirit's power, no to a thought, no to a feeling, no to a desire, no to an activity. When you've said no, how many... How many of you have seen that that temptation will be driven away by God? How many of you? You see, Holy Spirit-inspired, empowered knows work. It's the greatest single word of deterrence that you will ever have in your vocabulary when it comes to sin. Stop saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Because when you say, I don't want to do this, you do want to do it. If you don't want to do it, don't. Right? If you don't want to do it, what? What? Don't do it. But the fact that you're doing it tells me you want to do it more than you don't want to do it. Come on, we're not dumb, are we? We don't want to play that silly game, do we? I don't want to do this. Oh, God, you know my heart. You know, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, stop it. Just say what, James? No. That's right. Just say no. You don't have to tell God all this, I don't want to do it, Lord. Oh, I don't want to stop that foolishness. Just say no. He's not interested in all your whining and your complaining. He is only wanting to see a sturdy, strong, powerful no against sin. That's what pleases God. Imagine your child coming home. Say, I'm trying to do my homework. I'm trying to do your homework. I'm trying to do. What would the mama say? Go upstairs and do your homework. Right? Miss Jones, I tried to do my homework. Miss Meyer, I tried to do it. I tried to do it. I tried to do it. No way. The problem is you didn't do it. Say no to temptation. Now, you, you should, by now, be applauding Bill Treby. He said, I could change, and I did not bellow the word no. Bill, Bill that was a, I haven't raised my voice one time yet this morning. No, that wasn't a voice raise. Here's a voice raise. You know, he said I couldn't change. So I said no in a very sedate, loving way. Amen? In a very loving way. I didn't do it because I didn't. I didn't say it that way because I wanted to. Trust me. Sowing to the Spirit. You see, it's not only necessary to say no. We must say yes. We cannot live by saying no. It won't work. When I say no to sin, I must say yes to the Spirit, not implicitly so, but explicitly. Holy Spirit, will you fill me now with your power to overcome and wash my mind, my desire, my thoughts away from this thing for which I have just said no. There must be a no and there must be a yes. Sowing to the Spirit. Repentance is saying no to sin and faith is saying yes to the Spirit because of the gospel. There are seven ways to say yes to the Spirit, and he lists these on pages 140 to 148. There are seven ways to say yes to the Spirit. These are God's means of encouraging, emboldening, and empowering our yes. In and of themselves, none of these will have the ability. They have the ability only as God uses these as his tool to say yes. I can read my Bible all day long and absolutely have no spiritual life in me. 
It means nothing to me until the Holy Spirit enlivens it. How many of you remember the day after you were saved when you picked up that same Bible and read those same verses or heard those same songs and all of a sudden the lights were on? Remember? It was the same Bible. It wasn't a different Bible. The same Bible. I remember reading this thing like, man, what is this? I, don't, I didn't get it. It meant nothing to me. Well, after the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, it was like, oh, how could I have not seen this? So the Holy Spirit is the one who is behind and in all of these, if you would, seven steps. Don't depend upon the steps. Depend upon the Holy Spirit to use these. The Bible, obviously, is God's Word. It's His primary means of transforming us. You might want to read some of the verses in Psalm 19, especially, I think it's verses 7 to about 11 in there what the Word of God does in our lives. It's a wonderful set of verses, Psalm 19. You see, the Bible deals, the Word of God deals with our hearts and declares God's glory. Hebrews 4, remember, it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and makes a separation between soul and spirit. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the only way God will get into our hearts to show us where sin is and to show us how to live righteously. It, dis- it, it discloses God's glory, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Secondly, prayer. Prayer. And when I say read the Bible, I don't mean read occasionally. I mean setting aside a particular time of the day on a regular basis to begin to go systematically through your Bible with the help or without a help, however it is, but you do whatever God leads you to do to systematically go through your Bible and begin to read. If you don't know where to start, I would start in the Gospels and read the Gospels several times to get to know this Lord of glory. Prayer. God uses prayer to apply that word that we have been reading and studying. See, if you ain't got no word, there's nothing to apply. To reading and studying, applying his word so that we will receive his strength and his wisdom to instruct us, to correct, to encourage, having great power for changing us. Don't want to be changed? I will be in the word. I cannot say to the Lord, change me, change me, sanctify, transform me. Oh, Father, make me for your glory. And I don't ever pray. I don't mean praying while I'm taking a shower. Lord God, how are you? I, pray then, pray. I don't mean pray when you're driving down the street. Pray. That's okay to practice the presence of God on a regular basis. You should do that. That's good. It's appropriate. What I mean is go to God and stay with him for a while. Now let me talk to the grandmas and the mamas and the daddies again. When you have your little ones around you, even if they're 40 years old like mine is, she's still my little one. And during the day, you see the, your child, your grandchild or whatever, maybe even your best friend, and, hi, how you doing? We're always conversing. Is that right? Now, especially to the mamas, but I think to the daddies also, is this enough for you? Bath, is this enough just to kind of have conversation? What do you want? You said this. Come aside. I remember... Not too long ago, I've forgotten exactly the context. Jonathan, my grandson, my main man, was at the house. And I said to him, I said, sweetheart, it's okay, you see, for me to call him sweetheart. To me, that's not a feminine thing. Sweetheart, let's go sit on the swing together. Oh, okay. And we sat there. If you'd have watched us, there's two guys sitting. 
Now, to women, this is untenable. How, how are you not talking? You know, this, women are made to talk more than men. Men can have great company. We're just, you know, we said a couple of grunts to one another. You know what it was? My grandson was with me. With me. This is what God says. Come sit with me. Andy, come on over. Let's sit on the swing together. Let's just hang out. Even if you don't say much, I'm with you and you're with me. See, love says company. It doesn't require a certain amount of chatter. It says company. The conversation will take care of itself within the company. That's prayer. That's what God wants of us. Worship or a community. Oh, I've already said community, haven't I? God has placed us in a community for our mutual encouragement, support, protection, learning, correction. Why? Look at all. I, I, I didn't even, there's so many verses that have to do with one another in the New Testament. It is incredible. Why? Because God is a community within himself. And in order to reflect his glory, in order to be image bearers, we must be in community among ourselves in order to show that God is a community of three persons. That's why one another is so significant, is so all over the New Testament. Why? Why? Because this is God's very character and nature. The community within the Godhead is being expressed among us within community. How to help deal with sin? Community. The sharing, the encouragement, all the kinds of things that happen when we're in biblical relationship with one another. Worship, being careful and, obe- careful and deliberate to give God honor and praise in all that we do, both publicly and privately. Worship just doesn't mean on Sunday morning raising your hand and listen to a couple of weirdos scream and yell up in the front. It means giving my whole life in adoration and honor and praise to God at every moment that I can think of. Worshiping God. That doesn't create an atmosphere for sin. It doesn't allow for sin to get in nearly as easily. (coughs) Serving, being intentional to minister to the needs of others, giving our attention and time to the purposes of God and other people. And as we are serving the purposes of God by serving one another, half the time we don't have time to be sinning. How many of you have found out that when you're serving for Alpha, you don't have time for some of those thoughts that bother you when you're alone? We just don't have time for it. It's just not there. But it begins to draw others into our lives and draw us into others' lives. And it does. It begins to overcome some of those deep needs that we are trying to fulfill in sin. And we find our needs and our pleasures and our joy and our meaning and contentment and satisfaction being found in serving one another. I think one of the strongest things a church can do biblically is to have a culture of serving, not only serving within the context of the church itself, but serving out into the community where those people do not know the gospel except for our giving ourselves to them in a serving context. We must be that kind of a people in order to honor God to the way that he wants us to. Suffering, oh my word, suffering The quote from 147, suffering stirs the calm waters of latent sinful desires. It reveals the true state of our hearts. I have to suffer. Can you say this? I want God's glory in my life no matter what 
the suffering I have to endure. Well, you may not be able to say that, and I would understand if you couldn't, but at least you can say this. Father, I would like you to create in me that attitude of being willing to suffer whatever it would take for your glory. See, I can't say I want to. I don't know. But at least I can say, Lord, would you create in me that kind of a desire? Hope. Our looking for the fulfillment of God's promises by faith in the midst of every circumstance. You know, on page 148, he says, What frees us from the vain pursuit of earthly treasure is the hope of treasure in heaven. That's what frees us. Thank you for being here this morning. Next week, we'll be talking about chapter 9. Amen? Have a lovely day.